but I did want to preach to you this Sunday morning. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. I have been had ample opportunity to read all over the Bible while I've been out here, but of course the Psalms have been near and dear to me, and so I want to preach from Psalm 130. It says this, verse number one, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let us pray together. We thank you, Lord, for the word of God, especially the Psalms, how that they speak to every situation in life. And there's such a comfort and coming back to the character of the Lord is, is a comfort. And I pray this morning that the message will be a blessing to anyone right now who is in the depths of despair and that uh, your Holy Spirit will encourage them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you look at the title of the psalm, it's called A Psalm of Ascents. And a, a psalm of ascents is what the pilgrims would sing on the way up to the Temple Mount for a feast. This is one of the most treasured psalms of the, 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 the latter half of the psalms, other than Psalm 119 and some of the others. Uh, but um, it's got some interesting stories behind it. Many of you have heard of the salvation testimony of, of John Wesley. And all people are saved by uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through his grace and confessing their sins and believing on his uh, atoning grace. But the triggering event for how somebody gets saved can be different for different people. And if you know anything about John Wesley's conversion story, you know that he was... Um, in 1738, he was in London, and he was at a meeting house, and he was listening to someone read from Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans, and that was one of the triggering events for his salvation. But what is not known by many people is that earlier in that day, he attended a Vesper service at St. Paul's Cathedral, and during the course of that Vesper service, they sang a song, which was Psalm 130. Wesley was greatly moved, and it became one of the means that God used to open his heart to the gospel. Psalm 130 is what we call a penitential psalm. It's the sixth of seven penitential psalms. You might be familiar with Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Psalm 51, of course, is known as the psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba and being confronted by Nathan the prophet. This is that type of psalm. 
It starts with the lowest depths of despair and progresses steadily upward until at the end there is encouragement for many people. It is part, as I said, of the Psalm of Ascents. And the pilgrims would come from Jericho, which was almost a thousand feet below sea level, to the heights of the Temple Mount, which is about 2,600 feet above sea level. And as they were ascending those steps, when they came into Jerusalem, they would be singing these psalms of ascents. And in this sense, Psalm 130 itself is a literal song of ascents, for it climbs from the depths of despair, the abyss of despair, and to the high ground of steadfast hope in the Lord. And we see this progression uh, mirrored in each of the Psalms' four stanzas. There are four stanzas, and they, they, they mirror the situation. First of all, there is sorrow over sin. Secondly, there is forgiveness. The third stanza is faith in God. And finally, the fourth stanza is a testimony to the grace of God. And so let us look at sorrow over sin in verse number one. Notice what the psalmist says. He says, out of the depths I cry to you. Now the depths refer to deep waters or a very remote location. It's, it's the idea of being on a stormy sea or being swallowed up by the sea. It's a powerful image of someone being in danger. We can see a couple ways that this is, is explained from Scripture. If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, we'll read the first two verses and see a, a colorful description of somebody who is in the depths of despair. Psalm 69, 1 and 2 say, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. And so here you see the psalmist it being just covered up in the depths of despair. He feels like he's drowning in despair. Save me, O God. We see another person in the Old Testament who is, uh, finds himself in a similar situation, and that is the prophet Jonah. You don't have to turn there, but I will read from Jonah chapter number 2 when he says he's, he's in the belly of the fish, and he prays to the Lord, and he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. Someone calling to God out of the depths is in a desperate situation. And oftentimes, that situation is of their own making. Now, we have to ask this question. What is the psalmist troubled about? What is he troubled about? Well, he's troubled about his own sin. How do we know that? Well, verse number three talks about a record of sins. In verse number four, um, the psalmist talks about forgiveness. And in verses 7 and 8, he speaks of redemption. And so this is all about sin. And he's in despair because of his own personal sin. Now, John Owen, the, the British or English Puritan, wrote a book, 332 pages on this one psalm. Now, full disclosure, in case you're wondering, 
I haven't read it, but it's quoted profusely in the different places that, that I was studying the psalm. And he writes this about the psalm. He says, The psalmist cries out under the weight and waves of his sins, desiring to be delivered from those depths out of which he cried. He deals with God wholly about mercy and forgiveness. And it is sin alone from which forgiveness is a deliverance. The doctrine also that he preached upon his delivery is that of mercy, grace, and redemption as is manifest from the close of the psalm. And then Owen closes this way. Sin is the disease. Affliction is only a symptom of it. And the problem with many people today, especially in appreciating a psalm like this, is that many people don't have awareness of sin. Many live most of their lives with very little awareness of God, where, and where God has been abolished, and awareness of sin is inevitably abolished as well. Because sin is defined only in relationship to God, we need to recover a sense of sin. We need to discover how desperate our condition is apart from God. We need to know that God's wrath is not an old-fashioned theological concept, but is a terrible an impending reality, that wrath of God. But for those of us who are Christians, we understand the gravity of sin. Sometimes we lessen the gravity of sin in our own minds, but for the most part, we understand the gravity of our sins. And um, oftentimes, we will feel despair over our sin. Where do we turn when we find that? Well, some people choose to go the route of denial. They refuse to believe that they're guilty of anything. Others choose blame shifting. They admit that they're guilty, but they, they blame it on someone or something else. Parents, teachers, government, cultures, genes, or Slip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. But when we have sinned, and we know that we have sinned, and we're grieved over that sin, sometimes we can fall into the depths of sin, and when we, or depths of despair, I'm sorry, the depths of despair. And when we get there, we, we begin to, to ask ourselves, how can a child of God sin the way I sin? How can God save somebody who he knows is going to sin the way I sin? And maybe, maybe those depths of despair are our own doing. Or maybe those depths are the Holy Spirit conviction. But we need to do, when these times come about, and every Christian experiences a time when they're just in absolute despair over their sin, and when these times come about, we need to do what we did at the moment of our salvation. And that is throw ourselves to the mercies of God. Cry out to Him. Admit to Him the sin. The psalmist knew that he needed, needed God. And that's why in verse number 2, he repeatedly asked God to hear him. Listen to his, his cry in verse number 2. Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. 
That's the way that we come to the Lord. We don't run from the Lord. We don't grovel in, in pity and in, in, in self-afflicted um, despair, but rather we run to the Lord. We don't run away from Him. And when we run to the Lord, you know what we find? Forgiveness. That's the second stanza in this psalm, verses 3 and 4. Sin is the problem. And so the psalmist seeks forgiveness, and God gives it freely. Look at verse number 3 with me. He says, O Lord, should you mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Here the psalmist knows that he is crying out to a perfectly holy, righteous, just God. And when he asks this question, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? The implied answer the rhetorical to this rhetorical question is no one. Now, very quickly, he follows it up with um, verse number four, which says this, with you, there is forgiveness. Now, you may not find forgiveness with other people. Your husband or your wife may not forgive you when you have wronged him or her. Your children may not forgive you. Your co-workers may not forgive you. But there is one who will. And that is God. And the fact, and don't miss this, the fact that God is perfectly holy and just, so holy that He cannot look upon sin, makes the pardon of our sin so incredible. The one who has never sinned forgives. The one who never needed forgiveness forgives. The one who would be perfectly just to give us eternal punishment forgives. Amazing, isn't it? We, on the other hand, who have experienced forgiveness, we who need forgiveness find it very hard to forgive. We who have not the moral superiority over any other Christian or any other person, we oftentimes stand in judgment. And rather, we would rather hold grudges than to be like Christ and freely forgive. Now I want you to note something very important about this forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't occur when you try to cover up your sin. It doesn't occur when you minimize it. It doesn't occur when you rationalize your sin away, forgiveness comes to those who want forgiveness and are willing to confess their sin. 1 John 1.9 says what? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now there's an important question that we need to ask. When you begin to think about the fact that God is perfectly holy and just and righteous and He can't stand the sight of sin and yet the Bible says that He gives forgiveness freely, there's a question that comes to mind and it is this, why? Why is there forgiveness of sin with the Lord? The answer, and I'm all, there are many answers, but I'm going to strictly focus on what the psalm says. Look at the end of verse number four with me. The end of verse number four says, gives a reason. It says this, so that he may be feared. God forgives 
so that he may be feared. The natural response of one who is forgiven such a massive debt of sin is reverence. When we understand God's forgiveness, we will rightly fear the Lord. We will rightly revere the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said this, None fear the Lord like those who have experienced His forgiveness, forgiving love. James Montgomery Boyce said it this way, Those who have been forgiven are softened and humbled and overwhelmed by God's mercy, and they determine never to sin against such a great and fearful goodness. Is that your experience? Is that your experience knowing the goodness of God knowing the massive uh, forgiveness of your sin, knowing the great grace of God, that you have a reverence and a reverential awe and fear of Him. But here's, here's the thing that we all know very well, and that is even though we do not want to sin, we do sin, don't we? And when we sin, we confess. And when we confess... The Bible says that he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Now, verses 5 and 6 are very interesting because they can be very easily misunderstood. Knowing that he is sinful and knowing that he can't cover it, dismiss it, or achieve any kind of merit, the psalmist turned to God for mercy. The psalmist receives forgiveness, and now in verses 5 and 6, he waits. Notice the intensity. Three times in verse number 5, the psalmist says that he waits. Look at it. I wait for the Lord. That's me. Then he says, my soul waits. And then he says, in his word, I hope. And then he explains the intensity of this waiting. For he says, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. So he is waiting for something. He's waiting for the Lord more than the night watchman waits for the morning. Why does the night watchman wait for the morning? Well, there's at least two reasons. One of them is, that it's really hard to see what's going on in the darkness around when it's night. Very hard to see. And so the night watchman is going to want the morning daylight so he can see. But secondly, the night watchman longs for the morning so he can get relief. Because when his night watches over, another one takes over and, and he can go get some relief from whatever he, uh, the tiredness he's dealing with. When I was in college, I, I worked at a, a trucking firm, uh, a nation, nationwide trucking firm, and they had about uh, six different shifts in a day. And one of those shifts was from 10 o'clock at night until 6 o'clock in the morning. And that was a very hard shift. And I, I remember working, and I, I worked two jobs, and I went to class. It was my senior year of college, and I was tired all the time. And there were some times... Right before the break of dawn, about 4 o'clock in the morning, it could be cold, freezing cold in the middle of the night, and it's dark, and you get so tired that you could just fall asleep standing up. 
And I yearned for the morning sun to come up because I would wake up with that morning sun. And I would also know that my shift was about over. And this is the, the idea behind waiting for the Lord for the, for the, uh, like the night watchman. And now that brings us to the question that, that I haven't answered yet. And that is this. Why is he waiting? For what is he waiting? What is he waiting for? Well, he's not waiting for deliverance from trouble. For the psalm says, this is not about his troubles. It's about his sin. He's not waiting for forgiveness either. For the earlier stanza says that he had already found forgiveness. Verse number four makes that very clear. He found forgiveness. So what is he waiting for? What is he waiting for? He is waiting for God himself. It is God that he offended by his sin. It is fellowship with God that has been broken and needs to be restored. It is his Holy Spirit that has been grieved. He is forgiven whether or not he feels forgiveness at all. And that's, that's one thing that we need to point out. Many times, we, we cannot rely upon our feelings. When it comes to Bible truth, we cannot rely upon our feelings. We have to rely upon the truth of the Bible. And the Bible says that we are forgiven. And so you can't rely upon feelings. He's forgiven whether he feels it or not. Because he has asked God for it, and God promised to forgive, what he's waiting for is that intimacy to be restored with God. The Bible says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And the idea behind grieving the Holy Spirit is that there is a, 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 a um, distance of sorts to the fellowship that we have with God. And he's waiting for the Lord. Practically speaking, by the way, based upon this text, one of the ways that we can express a deep longing for the mercies of God is by seeking him in his word. It is in his word he meets with us and speaks with us. It is in his word that we hear the gospel afresh, his assurance of pardon every day. In our busy world, we must fight to find time to sit down and patiently wait for the Lord in his word. Our spiritual lives will be shallow if we refuse to wait for the Lord, if we refuse to meditate on his word and read large sections of his word, if we refuse to be long in private prayer. Protect, dear believer, protect your daily communion with God and long to see the risen sun like the watchman long to see the rising sun. Now why? Why is he waiting upon the Lord? Why does he long? I guess would be the better question. Why does he long for the Lord? The answer we saw when I was back with you in Virginia preaching, and that is because Christ is a reward. Do you remember the words of Psalm 36, verses 8 and 9? I'm going to read it. You don't have to turn there, but you can definitely turn there and take a look at it if you want. Listen to Psalm 36, 8 and 9. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Remember that phrase we talked about? The river of your delights. For with you there is a fountain of life, 
In your light do we see light. And so here in Psalm 36, the psalmist makes it very clear that God is the goal. God is the one that we long for. God is the delight of our light. Remember Psalm 16, verse number 11? You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In God's presence there is joy. And if you are in Christ, Jesus said at his great commission that I am with you always. And so if you are a believer, you have the presence of the Lord in the form of the Holy Spirit. Christ sent another comforter, another of the same kind, and he is with us even right now. And so we can experience joy day by day because we're in the presence of the Lord. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am the living water, and whoever drinks will never thirst. This is what the psalmist desires. The psalmist desires God himself. Now that brings us to the last stanza, stanza number four. And so we've seen sorrow over sin. We've seen forgiveness of sin because of repentance, prayer, faith, and hope. And we have seen the, the, the psalmist waiting on the Lord. And now we find in the last stanza, we find a testimony about trust in the Lord. Now he turns to those about him. The psalmist has been dealing with his own personal life. Now he turns to everybody else around him. And he says to Israel, um, hope in God. Because God's nature, because of God's unfailing love, because of his redemption. Let's read verses 7 and 8 together. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The testimony of the psalmist is a testimony of all who know Jesus Christ. Do you remember this when you were saved? You, you were under the heavy weight of your sin. You confessed your sin. You received forgiveness. And this, this weight was lifted off your shoulders. And what you wanted to do, you wanted everyone to experience the same thing that you had experienced with you. And so you go out and tell people. And this is the, what the psalmist is doing. Why can Israel, and for that matter, us too, put our hope in the Lord? Because the psalmist says that with him is love. With him is redemption. In other words, what the psalmist found is when he confessed his sin and sought forgiveness from God, it was not a once in a blue moon experience. Because God's character does not change. God is as forgiving now as he always has been. God is as willing to forgive you now as he did at the time of your salvation. He will always be the same forgiving God. Therefore, the writer says, put your hope in God. You have your hope in God? The psalmist ends with this profound promise. He, listen to it, he himself he himself will redeem israel from all their sins now 
at this stage of the unfolding of God's progressive revelation, the psalmist may not have understood exactly how forgiveness could be provided by God, who nevertheless is also just and holy and must act justly in regard of sin. How can the God who has to judge sin freely give forgiveness? How can he provide redemption? A just God must punish sin, not forgive it. Paul says that this fact about God was not made entirely clear until the death of Jesus Christ many centuries later. God made the redemption possible. God made the forgiveness possible. How? Do not miss this. Through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, God desired forgiveness of his saints to such a great degree. He desired his own glory. He desired that people revere him as a holy and awesome God so greatly that the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through how? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus took that death to the cross. He bore our death. He took death in our place, bearing sin's full punishment so that God can freely forgive us, so that we can be freed from the power of sin, so that in eternity, forever and ever and ever, Christ will be glorified and magnified for what he did, and God will be magnified and glorified for his his orchestrating all the circumstances. Psalm 130 contains a penetrating statement of the gospel. How is one saved? One is saved when they cry out to God. It's not a work. They realize that's the only place they can go. God is the only one that can forgive. And so they confess their sins knowing that God will freely forgive because Christ paid that redemption price. And we know that, don't we? And we are saved. But if you are like me, you find yourselves sometimes despairing over your sin. I talked about that in one of the church devotionals last week. Sometimes we find ourselves absolutely despairing over our sin. We, and why is that? Because we understand the gravity of our sin. We understand how offensive our sin is to God. And we also know that we have been saved from the power of sin. And we look in the mirror and we say, if you have been saved from the power of sin, why do you continually sin? Why do you do this form of sin? Why do we sin at all? What happens? We despair. And sometimes we run from God instead of to Him. And we wallow in the mire of self-pity when we should turn our eyes upon Jesus. I want to close by reminding you of these truths through a hymn. hymn I've been listening to this week is called Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. Listen to the stanzas. First stanza says, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, 
grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the lamb or the blood of the lamb was spilled. Verse number two. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. And then the third verse says this, Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, You that are longing to see His face, will you this moment His grace receive? I'm talking to many people who have received that grace in their life. Don't forget that. Don't forget that the same God who forgave you your sin at your salvation will will, um, restore you, will restore fellowship with you, If you confess, He is faithful and just. But if you've never turned to Jesus, will you turn to Him now and be freely saved? Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for the truth of this psalm. We thank You that is God and God alone who forgives sins. You haven't changed in all of eternity. You haven't changed in the thousands of years of human history. You haven't even changed since we have been saved. You freely forgive. You freely restore those who turn to you. I pray for right now, dear believers, who may be wallowing, who may be despairing. They're in the depths of despair, uh, looking in the mirror. I pray that they will look out of the mirror and instead to the mirror of the Word of God that that reflects the glorious light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that you will restore their joy, that you will be their treasure above everything else that this world has to offer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.